Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to explore and discover what it means to be truly known. On today's podcast, we are going to be wrapping up season one. I'll do everything I can to get Kurt to just land that plane. We're going to wrap this dude up. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Right on. What a great uh, start to the podcast this season has been uh, enlightening and um, it's just been amazing. You know, I think back um, on the uh, eight episodes that we have recorded and the places that we've gone. And I think back to that very first episode when we just sort of um, introduced the idea of being known and um, the idea of interpersonal neurobiology, uh, Christian spiritual formation, and attempting to tell our stories in a more true fashion. And um, just the foundation that was laid there for for the work. And I just appreciate um, so much how you, you spoke about those things. Can you remind our audience um, uh, this idea of uh, Christian spiritual formation? Um, mm-hmm. Can you remind our audience, you know, sort of your definition of what that is? Well, you know, Pepper, that takes us right, I think, to the whole notion that we described in one of our episodes about the process of storytelling. Mm. And, you know, I think that uh, in our world, we sometimes think of uh, Christianity as a religion, and we kind of line it up with all the other world religions. And especially in the West, we have this category for where religion sits, right? I have my leisure, I have my work, I have my family, I have whatever it is that I have, and then I have my religion. That's, you know, it's a category. And the thing about following Jesus that is so significant is that uh, Christianity isn't a religion. It is a story. It is a way of understanding the nature of history. It's a way of understanding the nature of what is the story that we're actually living in. It's not a religion. We often talk about it as if it is, or we often live it like, like it is, but it's, it's really a story. And so that story is the basis on which everything else that we talk about rests. And so when we talk about spiritual formation, again, it becomes easy for us to think about our spirituality as being this separate category, kind of like our religion is a separate category. But the story of the Bible, the story that the Bible tells us that we're living in, is this story in which this beautiful arc of how God, out of love, made us, gave us this enormous freedom and gifting to become deeply known by one another in order to create beauty and goodness in the world, how we have, in our own sense of wanting to do things our way, have kind of really broken our commitment to God and to each other, and we've kind of screwed things up, and we look around, and it's not that hard to see how we've done that. And God's uh, unstoppable pursuit of us, that his love for us that made us, is the same love that pursues us and continues to do so most formidably, I would say, and most powerfully in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And that we really believe that we are all, as part of this story, that we are being formed into people of great beauty. We are being formed into people of great kindness and goodness, and that we are called to be creators of that beauty in the world. And so I'm, I'm well aware, you know, that we, we Christians and, and, and our, our, our Jewish brothers and sisters talk about the Ten Commandments. And, you know, I tell people, I'm just really glad that there are only 10, because if there were 20, I'd be breaking all 20. I'm glad there's only, I don't have to count for 10 every day. 
And they remind us of like all the different ways in which I'm not formed very well in the image of Jesus. But life is about God forming me into the best version of Kurt and forming you into the best version of Pepper that we can be in order for us to be prepared and practiced for the world that we believe is coming. This new heaven and new earth that we read about in the New Testament and that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And so when we talk about formation, we want to ask, well, in what are the tools that we can use to become a better human being, a more beautiful human being, a human being that is more likely to create greater beauty? What does it mean for me to be formed into an image of a person like that? And that notion of spiritual formation, of Christian spiritual formation in and of itself, then turns to any number of different things that we find in our world that can really help me be better at being human. And in the same way that if I want to be a better tennis player, a better golfer, if I want to be a better pianist, if I want to be a better at anything, and I find something that enables me to enhance that skill set, that enables me to perform my piano better, then I want to use that. If I find a new machine that I can work out in the gym that enables me to be a stronger athlete on the field, then I want to use that. And I think that what we're describing with interpersonal neurobiology is that what we're discovering as part of God's own creation, this whole sense of neuroscience, the science of the brain, and its interaction, its re- interaction with human relationships, as we pay attention to that, we find that God has given us yet one more gift that when we implement what we can learn from that field, it enables us to become like professional human beings in the most beautiful way that we can imagine. Hmm. One of the things that strikes me is that formation feels to me like an active word, right? Pep, you're muted. I do my best work on mute. (laughs) (laughs) So so, um, (laughs) one of the things that strikes me is that formation feels like an active word. And Hmm. So that it's not a destination, right? I mean, I feel like part of the, uh, just the process of going through the formation is, is the important part, right? It's not, mm. it's not like, okay, it's, it's not called Christian formed, right? It's not, the, because right. I don't know that we will ever be that, this side of heaven. So, so I just like that it's an action word and that it's something right. that we're working towards. And it, it feels to me like, Almost all of these subjects that we've talked about this season are about that formation, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. are about that journey, you know? Right. And I I love what we read about in the first chapter of Jeremiah, where the prophet speaking the words of God, who says to Jeremiah, before I knew you, I formed you. I think that's the other thing that that word formation, I mean, I think you, you really point out an important element that this is a here and now, this is a present activity. Yeah. And it's not a passive thing. I'm not just watching something happen. I'm engaged. And at the same time, someone else is in the process or something else is in the process of forming me. And that this formation process is active and it involves other people who are bringing their lives to bear with mine. Right. This whole being known thing, if it's, if it's one thing, it's not. It's not passive. I mean, right. it, it requires us to pay attention and to work. Right. You know? Right. That's, that's one of the things that I've, I've discovered this, this season is um, you can't just sit and wait for this to happen to you. You have to engage. You have to do the work. Right. Great and work I think to do. You, yeah. Right. It is. I, you, you, you couldn't have said it better, I, I think, although I'm going to try to say it better. Here, right? <laughs> you, I you couldn't, couldn't have said, said it better. better I should just shut up. Could, I should just no, no, stop no. talking. Trust me. I couldn't have I, said it better, but I trust that you will be able to. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> work. Work. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, we like to say that the uh, brain is able to do a lot of really hard things for a long time as long as it doesn't have to do it by itself. And so much of how we live our lives when it comes to hard work, I, I easily and quickly imagine, oh, I'm, I, I, Kurt, am going to have to do that hard work of formation. And, and indeed, the work is hard. When Malcolm Gladwell talks about those 10,000 hours of practice, he's not kidding. When we think about the people who become masters of their craft, if they're a carpenter, if they're a musician, if they're a producer like you are, or a director, I mean, like you've spent hours and hours and hours of working at your craft as an actor. I'll never forget that story about, you know, the elevator. I think right. we may have told that story, right? We did. And you do hours and hours and hours of working to imagine what is it like to be, be in the grocery store, coming out of the grocery store, delivering the groceries. You're not just delivering a line. You are bringing a character onto the stage. And in some respects, that's exactly what we are doing. We are bringing ourselves, our characters, onto the stage. And we who want to be people of beauty and goodness, we who want to be known, we have to recognize that if we're serious about being humans of great beauty and goodness, it is going to take, it, it will be the hardest work we ever do. But I think it is easy for us to imagine that we live in this culture where, you know, becoming a person of character is something that I hope happens to me. And I shouldn't have to work any hard at any harder at it than I work maybe getting in and out of the shower. As opposed to all the hours that you put into being an actor, practicing, 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 practicing. And so we can be overwhelmed by that sense of how difficult this work is because it is indeed difficult. And some of the beauty is that in the course of that very hard work, when you and I can say to each other, uh, and I ask you how you are, and you tell me the truth, and what you tell me is that life has been hard, and I want to make sure that you know that I'm not leaving the room, and vice versa, and like, you can't make me go, that enables me, when you say that you're not leaving the room, when I'm telling you about my hard stuff, that enables me to continue to do the hard work, because I see what it's doing for you, and, and, and vice versa. And so this is also part of the beauty of what I, what, what I think, what, what I hope we're trying to do with this podcast is that we're not just trying to give people information. We're not just trying to entertain people. Uh, we really are wanting to invite people into the very dance that the Holy Trinity is inviting us into and acknowledge that this is hard work. Jesus didn't say, if anyone would follow me, come pick up your Tesla and then come along, right? He said, come and pick up your cross, this is hard work. Narrow is the gate. Right? He's not flinching about the notion that this is hard work and that there is no more beautiful work that we can do in the world and in our lives. Hmm. You talked a little bit um when we were talking about story, one of the things that struck me was that we, and you, you leaned on, you talked a little bit about it there, we collaboratively tell our stories. Mm-hmm. So remind us how we collaboratively tell our stories. Again, we like to believe that we are master. I like to believe that I'm the master of the universe, that I'm in charge of all the things that I think. And I often fail to recognize that so much of what I'm thinking is being shaped by the people who are in my life. And I'm not always aware that, in fact, that's how life began for me. When, my, when, you know, when, when our parents, whoever gave birth to us, when they became aware that they were pregnant with us, they started to tell stories about us. They were, perhaps they were glad that we were coming. Perhaps they were anxious that we were coming, as my parents were. Perhaps they were anxious even after I was born, as my parents were. And the people in our lives are already telling stories about us and then they teach us our words and they teach us our family, our familial traditions and so forth. And our sense of who we are is a thing that we discover in the presence of and with the help of other people who are telling us things 
about the truth of who we believe we are. And that never stops. Right? I mean, Pepper, how many times have I been at some point in my life, in my day, I mean, since you and I have known each other, and I find myself in a hard space, and I bring you to mind. And when I bring you to mind, what I sense in my own soul necessarily changes because I sense our relationship and I sense my not being alone. I sense your voice. I sense your physical presence. I sense times we've shared. I sense laughter. I sense embrace. I sense a sen- I, th- th- like you like you are in literally in my mind and body in this t- and in that moment, I begin to tell a different story about, about the moment and about myself. And when I wonder if God loves me, I might have a hard time imagining Jesus. I don't have a hard time imagining you. And so, hence, when we have talked about the part of our mission with this podcast is to enable people to tell their stories more truly we have to recognize that I can tell my story more truly to the extent that I'm doing that with people who are reflecting the truth about who I really am. And that's why collaboratively telling my story is important for me to be aware of because I'm always doing that. The question is not, am I telling my story with someone else or not? The question is always, who are the people? that are helping me tell my story on a regular basis. We all have them, and they're either literally physically in our lives, or perhaps they're even deceased, but they're in our head. And so this notion of being known necessarily is a notion in which my story is being known by others in order for me to be seen by them, in order for that act of being seen and soothed and safe and secure to transform the story that I tell about myself, but that doesn't really ever happen by myself. It has to happen in the presence of others who are coming to find me. And so to reverse so many of the effects of shame that have kind of wrapped, you know, wrapped itself around my story in ways that I want to be different. We also discovered that, uh, story is connected with your anthropology and your plausibility structures. Yeah. And you reminded us that, you know, you have to think about who is telling us who we are mm-hmm. um, right. with, with that. Um, right. And um, you, yeah, I, rem- I remembered you said, uh, well, I, 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 I'm, my, I, my penmanship is so bad that I wrote myself a note to remind <laughs> myself what you said. <laughs> And I literally can't read what it says. <laughs> okay. Mm. Growth of any kind takes place when we're stretched beyond our current capacity is something that you right. said. Can you talk about that a yeah. little bit? Yeah. Well, it's like being in the weight room and knowing that uh, we operate with a certain degree of strength. And if we want that strength to increase, we have to put more weight on the bar. Our listeners will get that immediately. And I, you know, I like that idea in principle. I agree with that idea in principle. Uh, There's nothing about that idea that I enjoy in real life. Nothing about it. That, uh, as others have said, no growth ever happens without pain of some kind. And this, again, gets back to the notion of what does it mean for me to be known. My capacity to push through the extra weight someone has put on the bar in the weight room makes a difference. If I have a spotter who's saying, this is going to be harder, I want you to push. I want you to push. I'm with you when you're pushing this bar off your chest or whatever it is that you're doing. And that whole notion of our uh, encountering suffering, suffering that comes sometimes because things that have happened to us in our own traumatic experiences, suffering that comes sometimes as consequences of our own choices, suffering that also comes, and this is a different kind of suffering, suffering that sometimes comes 
as a side effect of moving toward goodness and beauty. There is a certain suffering that I'm going to have to endure if I'm woefully out of shape and I'm deciding I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to start to become more aerobically fit. I'm going to start, I'm going to go to the weight room. And and like, I'm, there's going to be problems with that. I'm going to get winded. My muscles are going to be sore for a certain period of time. There's going to be a certain kind of suffering. And I think that that's important for us to know that that whole movement toward formation, which requires greater and greater sifting, greater and greater taking away of the parts of me that are unnecessary, not unlike the character Eustace in C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, who, upon waking to discover that he'd been transformed into a dragon, needed Aslan to come along and literally peel the scales off of him. And it didn't just happen once. It happened. There were several layers of that peeling process that took place, every single one of which was a painful encounter. And again, what's really crucial here, Pepper, is this notion that that kind of suffering is made different when we are not suffering alone. When St. Paul writes in his letter to the church at Rome, therefore we rejoice not only in anticipation of the glory of God, but also in our suffering, for suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This notion that we are not put to shame, that character is formed in the course of perseverance, in the face of suffering, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And how is the Holy Spirit present to us? Well, the Holy Spirit, we would say, in Christian theology, is present to us on its own. But the Holy Spirit is also deeply present to me when I'm talking to you. And this whole notion that the Holy Spirit is being poured out into my life because you are speaking to me and recognizing that you are Jesus' body and you are speaking on Jesus' behalf to me and saying, Kurt, in the middle of this suffering, I'm not leaving the room. In the middle of this next set of weight exercises, I'm going to be with you and we're going to work it out. It is in these places that beauty often emerges in ways that we would not have anticipated because we have so little practice at being willing to do the work of constructing beauty in the presence of others, but also in the presence of our suffering. And so one of the things that we really want our audience to hear is that the process of being known is not a party all the time, right? The process of being known often encounters, often brings us into encounters with pain, often with our own shame, with our own difficulties, on the way to healing and recommissioning, regeneration. And that creates suffering. But that suffering leads to beauty in ways that we heretofore would not even have imagined that it could have emerged. Hence, being known leads to beauty often in the presence of suffering, but suffering also in the presence of others, wherein which joy still is to be found, even though things are hard. When, we, when I asked uh, you to define the mind, one of the things you said was, is it embodied and a relational process? Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing that we, uh, you know, we live in a world in which you say, well, tell me, if you were to just ask, ask your average person on the street, like, well, what is the mind? I mean, they, they, most people would say, well, it's the thing that you think with, right? We human beings, we think about things. Right. And that's true. And we discover that my mind doesn't really do much for me apart from my body. And so we, we recognize that long before, even as a newborn, as an infant, as a toddler, long before I'm able to think, my body has been formed and my brain is part of that. 
And so we like to talk about this notion that the mind is an embodied and relational process because without the body or without relationship, we stop being human. And so, so much of what brings people into my office is related to how they've either become disconnected from their body or from their relationships. And as such, my mind becomes more fractured, more disintegrated, as we like to say. And as we read about in Genesis, that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth, and he breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and man became a living being, that man comes first as mud, first as we are first dirt, and into that dirt is breathed life that amounts to what it is that we believe that we have, that forms our souls, we are living souls, that includes our, our bodies. And so one of the most important ways that we can tend to our mind is by tending to our body, because it's not just my brain that thinks things, it's also my gut, it's my breathing, it's my hands, it's my face, it's my trunk, it's my legs, it's all of me that is sensing and imaging and feeling things. It tells my brain what it is that I'm sensing and imaging and feeling. I get that from my body. And then I have to make sense of that. But I only make sense of that effectively over the course of time in the presence of other relationships. Because there are so many things that we experience and that we feel that we long to have that experience with other people. When, you know, you could watch a great movie that's making you laugh, but like you want to watch that movie with your best friends. And you want to have your laughter intensified by the presence of everybody else in the room. When you are experiencing great sorrow, the presence of your friends enables your sorrow to be transformed. That sorrow is felt literally in your body, in your chest. But that sorrow is also shared when you look at the tears in your friend's eyes because they are with you in it. When we talk about the mind, when we talk about loving God with all of it, we can't think that we're only loving God with our thoughts. We love God with what we feel, with what we sense, with what we image. But I also love God in the context and presence of relationships that enable my mind to be what it is in the first place. My mind can't actually, at the end of the day, become all that it was made to be apart from being in the presence of other relationships who are helping me tell my story more truly, tell my story in accordance with the way the biblical narrative would have me see it to be. Do you sometimes think that um, God created us in relationship with one another so that we could understand our relationship with him? You know... Pepper, I, I don't just, I think I don't just sometimes think that. I, I think there's no other way to understand it. I mean, I, you know, how many times do we hear people say, well, I trust God. It's just humans I don't trust. And, you know, I've had many of those folks in my office to whom I usually say, well, I think the reality is that we actually only do trust God to the degree that we trust human beings. And they're like, well, no, that can't be true because I can name all these people that have done wrong by me and like God hasn't done me wrong and so forth. And I'm like, well, the reality is that we really can't separate our lives from God with our lives from, pe- from our lives with people. Right? When Jesus says to those who he will ultimately judge, well, you took care of the poor and the naked, and you took care of me. And they said, when did we ever see you? And he said, when you did it unto the least of these, you did it unto me. And I think this is, this. I mean, the way I think about it would be like this. You know, if you're part of a family, and uh, you, you, you love everybody in the family, uh, your relationship with your parents is definitely going to be contingent upon your relationship with your siblings. You know, how you get along with your siblings is mediated by your parents. If you have, we, as we like to say in the business, right, sibling rivalry isn't about siblings, it's about parents and parenting. And 
if I'm like, you know, we often hear people say, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a very good relationship with my sister or with my brother. To which you want to say, huh, well, how was it that your parents allowed that to happen? You know, like, I don't know. I don't know what my parents have to do with that. Like, that's, that's about, it's between me and my sister. Well, yes, and it's not just that. We would say, well, what's your relationship like with your parents such that you talk with your parent about that relationship with your sibling? Well, I don't really talk with my mom or dad about that. Oh, I wonder why that doesn't happen. And we see pretty quickly that you can't really talk about your relationship with your siblings in a way that isn't affected by your relationship with your parents. And so I tend to think of it in those terms that I I can't really separate these things. Now, this is both a hard thing for us, but it's also a beautiful thing because it means that the work of being loved by and seen by God in a way that I can take in most palpably, most viscerally, most realistically, can be done in the context of the crucible of how I'm doing that with real people. And though in the abstract, and we, we would say that we believe that God loves us perfectly and that humans love us imperfectly, even so, in that imperfection with which we love one another, we have the opportunity to repair those ruptures. And it's in that opportunity for repairing ruptures that we also see how God has come to repair rupture with us. And once again, get a better picture of God by witnessing what we do with each other. You know, Jesus, interestingly enough, in John's gospel, did not say, and they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love me. He said, no, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. I can't think of a more poignant comment in all of Scripture that would point to the notion that our relationship with God is deeply connected to our relationship with each other. We had the opportunity to talk about emotions uh, on one of the episodes, and and you said that emotions are important, um, but they're not the most important. Um, and I got the feeling that you were saying on that episode, um, sort of between the lines, that some of us uh, culturally put emotions up front and um, say that they are the most important thing and, and that's how we should live our lives get, you know, with that as your gauge, emotions as your gauge. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I, I you know, I, I think uh, we do uh, live in an age where both simultaneously we pay a lot of attention to what we think and at the same time we can sometimes allow what we feel to be the litmus test for what is real. In the same way that we've said that gasoline is important in our automobiles, you know, moving around, that everything is a, everything about driving a car is a function of fuel regulation. In that way, emotion is important for everything. But in the same way, we don't build a car just to have a place to have, a place to put gasoline. Emotion is not the only thing that determines reality. At the same time that thinking in our culture is really important, it's also the case that we've now come to a point where what I feel, what, 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 what enables me to be comfortable, whatever, wherever I find comfort, that is the litmus test for what is right and what is good. And what's difficult about that is that there, you know, as it turns out, Pepper, there are plenty of things that I could easily feel good about that are not necessarily good for me. I feel really good about eating, like at the moment, eating, you know, a sleeve of mint Oreos. But that's not really good for me. And we may talk about, and this, this is the other piece about this, and you know, we, we get into this when we talk about empathy, which I think over, in, over in, in subsequent seasons we'll talk more about this. This notion that when I feel, um, if, if you will hear people say, um, I feel um, offended 
for instance, I feel offended. I feel offended. I feel bad. I feel like and if not only if that, I mean that feeling, uh, I sense is the plumb line for what is real, for example. And therefore, if you do not only not just empathize with how I could feel bad, but therefore also don't line up your decision-making relative to what I think we should be doing, then, then that's not okay. In, in this sense, this is not unlike a toddler or, or an adolescent where, you know, they have feelings. They, how many, how many times has, has, you know, someone has, has an adolescent said to your parent, well, you're, you're just being, you know, unreasonable. I feel, I feel hurt. I feel this, I feel that because, you know, uh, I won't agree to what it is that you want me to do. And so I want to be able to validate their feeling. It's important. And to say, and your feeling is not to be the final judge of our decision that we make. And Jesus himself gives us a model for this when he says, like, I don't really want to do this crucifixion thing. If, if it's up to you, I don't feel like doing this. And yet, he chooses in a direction that I would say actually points to something else that he also feels in addition. He's paying attention to something beyond his immediate emotional state to what he anticipates a future emotional state will be. We read about this in the letter to the Hebrews, that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sits at the right hand of God. This sense that I right now feel one thing, but part of what maturation, part of what formation does, is it enables me to recognize what I feel in this moment and pause and imagine a different new state of emotional state in the future that enables me to make a particular kind of choice now that invites me to continue to suffer because I believe that I'm going someplace very different in the future. Yeah. We, um, we ended our, our first series um, with, neuro, with neuroplasticity. And I've been looking at the eight rules of engagement for neuroplasticity. Is that what you called them? These things that we can do to enhance it. Is that what Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And um, I, I love that it because, it, because it's sort of a... Uh, tangible thing that, that, that we can give people to help enhance neuroplasticity. Can, can you mind going through those eight things for us? I was wondering, maybe you could do that um, for us. I, sure. Let me, if you have that me list, because notes. Um, <laughs> I, I can do that. Um, okay. So aerobic exercise. Yep. I can see that you're fit as a fiddle. Yes. Um, diet. And by diet, you weren't talking about nutrition necessarily. Um, although I'm sure that's part of it. What you were, right. what you were talking about was um, the idea that when we eat, we try to at least have some meals where we're sitting for about 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, we're paying attention mm-hmm. to what mm-hmm. we're eating and we're with someone if we can be, and we're having yeah. conversation and, and then uh, sleep. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember I asked you how many hours of sleep a person needs. And you said, it's not a matter of hours. It's just a matter of hitting the four cycles, um, within the course of the, of, of the night. Right. Right. Creativity was a big one. Yeah. It's a huge one. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. And, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to stop there for a second. So what would you say to somebody who said, I'm not a creative person. So Mm -hmm. how can I add creativity to my daily walk? Yeah. And I would say that if you have a pulse, you're creative. That we were made to make things. And we make things every day. Um, We 
make relationships. We make work. We make a lot of things. But because we are a people whose imaginations, for the most part, beginning around about third grade, sometimes even earlier for some, start to get confined to a particular educational regimen, right? These are the things that we're going to go to school and learn. We're not necessarily invited to be curious about the nature of how education is ultimately about preparing us to be creatures that create. It's not just about getting through my grades, getting on to a job or to college or whatever. It is preparing me for the world in order to create things. And so we can then be imaginative in creating not just in the arts, but also creating an everyday work that we imagine a, a relationship in which we're going to have a conversation in which we want to make, we want to create beauty to, ha- to, to occur in the, in the natural course of this relationship. I want to have that in the course of the meals that we prepare. I want to have that in the course of how we uh, think about how we're going to do Christmas this year. I want to think about in the course of what I'm doing with my physicality. How am I going to uh, create goodness and beauty with my physicality and taking care of and stewarding my, my body? And I also think that when we hear these things, aerobic activity, sleep, diet, creativity, one of the things that is significant about this is that we, we imagine that we're having to do these things by ourselves. Our listeners, most of whom are going to be individuals, imagine that, oh, okay, I hear these things and I'm supposed, I am supposed to do these things. And that's true. But to the degree that we say, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to go for a walk, but I'm going to ask my neighbor to go with me. Hmm. I'm going to uh, do, I, I want to take a painting class, but I'm going to ask my friend to take the painting class with me. Any number of these things where we are engaging the relational aspect of the mind, right? We were embodied in relational creatures. Anytime that we involve relational engagement with this practice of creativity, everything is exponentially enhanced. And so I really want to imagine what it would be like for any of our listeners, if they were to have someone in their life say, I see you as a creative person. The question is, what is it and where is it that you really want to create? And our immediate response, well, I don't, I don't know. Like I'm not, I'm not a creative. And I would be curious to know where, what happened to you? What happened to you such that the way you tell your story is that you're not a creative person? That's not a fact. That's a way you tell your story. And the way you tell your story, I would, indica- I would suggest, isn't true to who you are. That there's not a single one of us on the planet that is not destined to create in some way, shape, or form. We may not all be hanging paintings in some gallery, but we are going to be creating something. And part of our job here on this podcast is to invite people to become more curious about what that is. That kind of reminds me of a story I was, uh, have you ever gone fabric shopping with your wife? (laughs) (laughs) I make a practice not ever to do that. So uh, my wife was making some window treatments for our house at one point, and um, we were going weekly, if not bi-weekly, to the fabric store and never coming home with anything. And Dude, week, oh. And we, and, and... I'd be, you know, we'd be looking at these fabrics and I'd be getting frustrated. Like what, what, you know, my eyes are starting to bleed. What are we, what are we doing here? And my wife looked at me and she said, um, you know, this is me being creative. This is part of my creative process. And honestly, it really, something really switched for me in that. And I was like, well, I can get on board with that. I, yeah, that's, that makes sense to me. And so it became Huh. A much more pleasurable experience. We were doing it together. We were, you know, um, but I just thought we were <laughs> wasting time there for a while. <laughs> Wandering around aimlessly yes, in, the, in the fabric store. But we weren't. Yeah. 
Um, so, right. so uh, getting back to our, our practices, yeah, uh, mindful practices, mm-hmm. and meditation. Our, our friend Amy brought me the um, Into the Silent Land and mm. um, have started that, which, oh wow, you know, you Beautiful. said you could read in a sitting, which I would tell our listeners that's not true. <laughs> um, I, I would say you could count this. So, so uh, number seven on the list is deep reading. And I would say you can count this as deep reading. So you'll, you'll be killing two birds yeah. with one stone <laughs> when you get into the silent land. But, but, but breathing and paying attention to your breathing and meditating um, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and whatever those mindful practices are. Uh, mm-hmm. Humor mm-hmm. is is one that you had listed, mm-hmm. and deep reading, mm-hmm. and I'm missing one. I think I think we we talked about deeply connected interpersonal relationships. Yes, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which is what the whole podcast is about. Let's just leave that one out. <laughs> yes, Whew. it's good. Interpersonal connection. Yeah. Yeah. Let, so let me, let me just say this. Even, so even right now, like, so an example. So uh, you, you asked me to give give me, you know, to give me a list. And so here's the truth. Um, I was afraid that I wasn't going to be able to name them all. Right. And so I pitched the ball back to you because I knew that you, I knew that you were, had them listed, li, li, you had them listed there. And I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to name them. Now, it could have been better for me to just say, like, Pepper, I, like, I'm afraid I can't name them all. Do you have them listed there? Maybe you could name them because I'm like, I might be able to name them, but I'm afraid that I, that, I would, that I would miss one or two. So I'm aware of this. And so now that I'm like making my confession that I might have just thrown you under the bus because you just asked me the legitimate, and I'm just like, no, Pepper, could you please name these? We'll see if you've been listening. And, <laughs> and there you go. Like you, you know, you, you just, you, you list them right off with the exception of the uh, most important one. And, um, <laughs> That might be a reflection of our relationship. Yes. And in any event, I, but I just want to say, like, that that just happened. Like, I I literally, like, I feel it in my chest. Like, I, I feel this uh, connection, hmm. this, even as we're, you know, making this recording on the internet, and I, I feel this connection, and this kind of connection is part of what enhances my neuroplastic expansion, right? This is, this is what changes, it strengthens the story that I believe I'm living in in the world because I'm that much more connected to you. I just want to say that even, even in our interaction right now, I'm having an experience of the very thing we're talking about. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I just want to say, you know, uh, I want to encourage people to go back and, and you know, re-listen to some of these episodes. We, we didn't talk a lot about uh, specifically the episode that we, that we had on longing and beauty, but I think that was all through this whole episode today and vulnerability as well, because vulnerability is not something you do. It's something you are. Mm-hmm. And I think that just um, uh, in the course of talking about all these things today, I think those things were sort of sort of spoken about without being spoken about. Um, I am uh, honored to be here with you, Kurt. This has been Mm. a great, great season. I look forward to, um, to getting back to it and, and our next season. Do you want to, you want to give a little bit of a peek into what uh, next season is going to entail? Go ahead. Don't throw it back at me. Sure. Um, I think that, our next, uh, our, our next, you know, couple of seasons, um, are, I think there are going to be a couple of things that we're going to do. One is each of these topics that we've covered, we're going to drill more deeply into each one of them. That's one thing I think that we'll that we'll be doing. Sure. I think I think we will be um, inviting each of us to actually even share more about our stories and how our stories provide examples of the very things that we're talking about. I think we are going to uh, enter into a time where we'll we'll be exploring even more of how the biblical narrative speaks into 
a lot of this interpersonal neurobiology that we've been talking about. And I also think that we're going to um, do I mean, a couple more things I think that will be relevant. One is we're going to be speaking uh, increasingly about how do these things that we're talking about apply to our present day in life uh, relative to the, to the current time that we find ourselves in, um, as well as naming explicitly how we take any and all of this to practice creating beauty in the world in very, very concrete ways. And I could not think of a better way to have those kinds of conversations than to have them with you. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you so much. Thank you for this whole series. And uh, I look forward to when we can be back together again. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for listening in. Love you. Love you. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and music is provided by Noah Needleman. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on our website, beingknownpodcast.com, or you can find us on social media at beingknownpod. Be well and be known. Be known.